You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen's a great word. Nate, team, thank you so much. What a beautiful, beautiful song. One of the things that I appreciate so much about the lyrics, it just reminds us of how faithful a God he truly is. It's also connected to scripture, folks. You know, that song derives from 2 Corinthians 1.20, which basically says, in Christ, and I'm going to paraphrase, all God's promises can be counted on. Aren't you glad for that this morning? Now, as I was studying, getting ready for today's talk, I asked myself the question, how many promises are there in Scripture? Have you ever thought about that? Well, here's the cool thing. I discovered that a gentleman in Canada has read through the Bible 27 times cover to cover. To cover. On the 27th time, he says, you know what I'm going to do this time? Just to make it interesting and have some fun, I'm going to identify all the promises of God in the Bible. Guess what he came up with? Let me show you the number. 7,483 promises in God's word. Can I get an amen? Amen. This is to you, to humanity, and especially the children of God. Think about it. So think about his promises. You're struggling with anxiety and fear, right? That's, that's part of the, the COVID thing right now. What does God's word say? He's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and self-discipline. Let's say right now you're struggling with finances. What does God say in his word? He will provide all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's say you're struggling to, to be faithful or have faith. We learned in Luke already. If we have faith as a mustard seed, and it's mustard seed, it's a tiny seed, what can happen? We can move mountains. Let's say we're struggling with fellowship. We feel alone. What does Jesus promise? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. And how about the future? When we lose loved ones, when we're wondering what's going to happen for all eternity, John 14, Jesus promises, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to come back to take you to be where I am also. Those are five promises of 7,483 plus promises. Let's hang our hat, folks, on the promises of God. Now, I hope you have your Bibles, because I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to focus on two verses today, 6 and 7. And I would contend, this is just Keith Missile, when I look at the promises of God, I would say this is probably the ultimate of promises in all of Scripture. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Stand with me, please. We're going to read this beautiful passage at home. Hopefully, you have your Bibles open. Let's just dive in. Think about the beauty of this promise right now. And so the prophet Isaiah writes, some 700 plus years ago, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. We talked about governance the first week. He will be named Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, eternal Father, Prince of Peace. What are beautiful attributes those are. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. In other words, his kingdom is, is vast, it's broad, and it's eternal. 
He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. That's 2 Samuel chapter 7, 14, the fulfillment of it. To establish and sustain it how? Notice, wouldn't you love this today? With justice and righteousness from now on and forever. When the righteous king is seated on the throne, there's going to be absolute justice, absolute righteousness. Thank God for that. And who's accomplishing this, folks? Notice, the eternal God has a sovereign plan. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this work. Please be seated. Now, I suspect as we read this passage, if you've been around Christendom at all for some time, you say, of course, that points back to the prophecy of Christ through the gospel of Isaiah. We have a vantage point that might be different from the average person then and now. Why? We have a completed Bible. Some of us have grown up in a Christian home or gone to a Christian school. We have a worldview that is rooted deeply in Christendom. And we say, of course, that's about Jesus, the coming Messiah. We go back to Isaiah 7:14, and we see a child will be born of a virgin. And his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then we connect it to Matthew 1, 21 through 23, the fulfillment of that prophecy. But folks, please hear me and don't miss this. We've already seen in the Gospel of Luke that the vast majority of people in Christ's day, first century Israel, did not embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so I'm not trying to be gloom and doom this Christmas season. I'm just trying to be accurate with the record, the biblical record. You may remember the religious establishment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, you know, the folks who said, this is how you keep the law, 1,507 commandments, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, we have codified the faith, check the box, cross every T, dot every I, perform, make the grade, and God will accept you, you'll earn his favor. Jesus the Messiah came and eradicated that idea. Then there was a group in Christ's day. You might remember the zealots. Who were they? They wanted to fight. They wanted to take up arms against uh, Rome, who was the ruling power, the oppressor. Jesus said, listen, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. My kingdom is not of this world. We're not here to fight fights. I'm here to be Messiah Ben Joseph, the suffering servant. The zealots wanted no part of that. And then you may recall, let's go back to Luke chapter 4. He is sitting in Nazareth in the synagogue. He opens the scripture. He goes back to the gospel of Isaiah, chapter 61. He says, today this is fulfilled in your midst. And what happened? Can I use this vernacular? All hell broke loose in Nazareth. His own people, wait a second, this is Joseph's son. He's calling himself the Messiah, the son of God. Is he nuts? They literally tried to drive him out of the town and push him off a precipice, a cliff. Let me show you the cliff that is in Nazareth today. And this was the cliff they tried to push him off. I've been there, folks. It's not far from the synagogue. Literally, they wanted to kill him because he said he was the Messiah. This is where he grew up in Nazareth. Now, Lest we be too hard on the religious establishment, the zealots, his hometown of Nazareth, I want to show you a passage. 
Hold your finger in Isaiah 6. You got to turn with me this time. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Again, I told you I was going to connect the dots of Luke to Isaiah, the gospel of Isaiah. Luke 24, 25 through 27. Folks, people struggle to embrace the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. And so here's what happens. Let me set the context. Jesus Christ is raised from the grave. He's appearing. At least nine appearances are recorded in the New Testament. At least nine. This one is to two men traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're frustrated. They're confused. They're struggling. Oh, man, this guy died. We thought he was the Messiah. What happens? Jesus shows up, and he reveals himself to the men who are struggling. Here's what he says. He says to them, how unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts. All that the prophets have spoken... Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with who? Don't miss this, please. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself. Don't miss this, folks, in all the scriptures. Now, the New Testament is not yet written. You realize that, right? What are the all the scriptures? The 39 books of the Old Testament. Jesus takes these men and later his uh, disciples, the 11, soon to be 12, and he takes them to Moses. He takes them to the prophets. And later it says in Luke 24, he takes them to the Psalms and he explains all about Christ the Messiah in the Old Testament. So there's a general rebuke. And that's how Christ is. He serves. He's concerned, though, that they were slow to believe. They were slow to embrace what the gospel was all about in the Old Testament. And if there's one prophet that accentuates the gospel more than any, it's the prophet Isaiah. And sadly, friends, what was true back then, I would say today, is very true. The vast majority still do not embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Some time ago, I was in a coffee shop in Minnesota, and I like to hang out in coffee shops for a variety of reasons. One, I love coffee, but two, I like to do ministry, just build relationships with baristas, patrons, and so forth. There was a gentleman sitting there, he's reading a book, and he was intently into it, and I just struck up a conversation. I said, sir, what are you reading? Let me show you the book that he was reading. It's a book by Christopher Hitchens. Here's the title. God is not great, how religion poisons everything. (laughs) As you can imagine, that conversation had uh, some interesting dynamics. So for the next 15, 20 minutes, we talked about God, faith, philosophy, and then Christ. Because I always try to bring the conversation back to the center. What do you really believe about Jesus? Here's what he said to me, and I quote, He says, I believe Jesus Christ is a mythological figure. As I drove away from the coffee shop that day, back to the office, I said to myself, how could an educated man, professional man, normal guy, think that Jesus Christ in 21st century America is a mythological figure? How could that be? Now, I have a hunch. Christopher Hitchens is an anti-theist. He's not an atheist. An atheist says no God. An anti-theist opposes God, fights against God, the idea of God. And so maybe there's a little bit going on there. 
But I want you to know something this morning. Please hear me. And at home especially, please hear me. No true historian today who knows their, did their homework, knows the data, would suggest remotely that Jesus Christ is a mythological figure. He's real. He came. He came as the Messiah who was born. And boy, he had a work to do, as uh, many of us embrace. And so, what does Jesus do to help these guys, the men on the road to Emmaus? And if we struggle to believe, what should we do? There's always one answer, folks, going back to the truth of God's word, going back to the scriptures. That's why we say at Westwind Church, abiding daily in the word of God. Why? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Go back to the Old Testament, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus Christ shows up everywhere. In fact, I would suggest this. The Old Testament message is that God who makes promises ultimately fulfills them through the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then you might ask, what about the New Testament? The entire New Testament is a testimony that God's promises have been and are being fulfilled. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, A son is given. 700 plus years before Jesus showed up, that prophecy was given. He is the Messiah. Now I want to encourage you this morning, if you have the Connect card, there's some resources on there that I'm going to highlight. If you're here with us live, thank you. Grab the Connect card today. I have a goal this morning. There's twofold. One is to equip you. Equip you to help others, like Jesus did to the men on the road to Emmaus, to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And folks, we we have to grow in this. We have to learn to address the difficult issues, like this gentleman in the coffee shop who thinks Jesus is mythological. The second thing I want to do is to inspire you to be thinking this Christmas, this real Christmas season, who you can share the love and gospel of Christ with. Who is that one in your life? Is it a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker? Folks, Jesus is the greatest gift we can give this Christmas. Let's offer that to our sphere of influence. So let's start with the blessing. Because of the biblical and historical evidence, I believe in my heart everyone should believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, friends, there are volumes written on the evidences for Christ. Time uh, remaining, I'm going to highlight two evidences. Some of this is going to be a little bit different. I hope you lean in. I hope you grow. I hope this is really kind of uh, an encouragement to you to equip you and inspire you. And so let's dive in. This morning, I want to focus on the revelation of Christ All right, so evidence number one, believe because of the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. And so three evidences this morning, a lot could be said. Revelation number one, Old Testament Christophanies of Christ. Now that might be a new word to you this morning. Don't let it confuse you. It's really simple. What is a Christophany? Christophanies are any intentional appearances or manifestations of Christ in human form prior to the birth of Jesus. When you read Genesis to Malachi, you see Jesus Christ showing up in human form quite a bit. Now, one of my favorite Christophanies is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, 
Again, if you can move through your Bible quickly, turn to Daniel 3, 24 through 25. While you're turning there, I'm going to set the stage. This is a time we're in Babylon now. It's captivity. There's three young godly men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a prideful, arrogant king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's calling all the people to bow down and worship him as God. People are doing it in groves, although there's three Jewish boys who say, not going to do it, not going to bow. They paid deeply for it. What happened? Because the king was enraged at how they responded to the decree, this decree, he threw them into a fiery furnace. But not only did he throw them into a fiery furnace, the text says in Daniel chapter 3 that he turned the furnace up, the dial, the heat meter, seven times hotter than normal. You know how hot this furnace was? Read Daniel 3. The guys, the attendants who threw the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace were incinerated in so doing. That's a pretty hot furnace. So now to our text, what happens? Three men sitting in the furnace, they wouldn't bother the king. Daniel 3, 24 through 25, we read. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw these three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty. They replied to the king. He exclaimed, and I love this next phrase. Look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Friends, this is a remarkable scene and an incredible miracle. Try putting yourself in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes. You're trying to honor God. You're trying to live in a pagan land. You're trying to do what's right and and glorify God with your life. And yet your life is at risk if you don't bow down. And they say, hey, we know the Lord's able to rescue us. If he does, amen. If he doesn't, we're good. We're good with that. Who shows up in the furnace? Folks, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is a Christophany. He's present with them in the pain and suffering and the difficult trials of life. He shows up and rescues them. He redeems them. Notice what happens in this furnace. They're like walking around. I mean, the details are pretty cool here. They're just chilling out. They're having fun. The king's looking down and saying, wow, looks like a son of a god. And what happened was King Nebuchadnezzar had an aha moment. He had a revelation of the one true God through a Christophany of Christ. Now, you might be asking, what's the relevance of all this? It's hugely relevant, folks. I don't know how your uh, faith journey has played out, but early on in my faith journey, I was taught this. Focus more on the New Testament. Old Testament's good, but why the New Testament? Well, it's the New Covenant. The New Testament's all about grace. The old is all about law. Focus on the New Testament. And early on in my faith journey, I'll be honest with you, I neglected the Old Testament scriptures. Guess what I learned? That is a sad commentary on how to do the faith. Why? Because the Bible, for the better part of the first few hundred years of Christendom, was the Old Testament. The New Testament was being progressively written, copied, distributed, canonized in 325 AD. So the Bible for Christians truly was the Old Testament. Please don't neglect it. And so here's what I would encourage you. You truly want to understand the New Testament and the New Covenant, you have to understand the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. 
If you truly want to understand the Old Testament and Old Covenant, you have to pair it with the New Testament and the New Covenant. Why? It's all about God's plan, his glory and grace. And that little girl said amen. I like that. I've told families, you know what? Bring the kids because I'd rather have you here and me thrown off point. We're just going to have fun. So God bless you with the younger kids. Let them run around and uh, be happy. At least we're together as a family. Would you agree? So can I encourage you folks? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable. For doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So the man and woman may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Answer this question. How much of scripture? All scripture. The Old and New Testament, yeah, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Yeah, we, we see this, this progressive revelation, but folks, we got to pair it together. There is one book. It's the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. It's his redemptive narrative, and let's embrace it. Now, Revelation number two, Old Testament types of Jesus. And again, I don't think this is new to you, but it might be new in the sense of how I package it. So what is a type? A type is a picture, an analogy that develops in the Old Testament and is clarified and understood in the New Testament. And I promise you this, there are dozens, if not hundreds of types in the Old Testament. In fact, I would contend that the vast majority of the 39 books in the Old Testament have types of Christ. Now, one probably comes to mind right now. It's the most dominant one. It's the Lamb of God. So let's take a look at that. You may recall John the Baptist, when he's doing his public ministry, remember, he's the forerunner of Christ. He's hanging out with his disciples. There's Jesus about age 30, and he points to Jesus. Let me show you John 129. He says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said this, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Folks, in the Western mind, that, that sounds weird. I grew up in a city, right? I'm not an agrarian kind of guy. I don't know a lot about farming and shepherding and sheep and goats and all that stuff. But John and his people did. They point to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Strange statement. Who takes away the sins of the world. How can a lamb take away the sins of the world? Well, here's how. It's the Lamb of God. Folks, this wasn't new to Jewish people. In fact, it goes back to the book of Exodus. Remember, Moses. Exodus chapter 12, let me show it to you. It's about the Passover, Israel being redeemed from Egypt, redemption. Exodus 12 says this, you must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. And if you know the story of the Passover, it's beautiful. An innocent animal's blood was shed, the blood was put on the doorpost. The angel of death came by and passed over. That's forgiveness. That's atonement. In 1 Peter, then we read what? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's a type of what was to come. It's a shadow of the substance of the reality to come. Now, continuing that theme, back to the messianic prophet, Isaiah 53, 7. Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth, notice this, like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep silent before shearers. What happened? He did not open his mouth. 
The prophecy of Christ in Isaiah 53, which is a dominant passage on prophecy of Christ. Like a lamb, like a sheep, led to what? To slaughter. Every Jew knew what that meant. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now we jump to the New Testament. Revelation 5.12. They said with a loud voice in heaven, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You know what's going on in heaven? It's the lambs being worshipped. Why? Because he was slain. Because he gave his life a ransom for many. That is the gospel. And then the book of Revelation concludes, my friends. Revelation 19. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice. Give him glory. Why? Because the marriage of the land has come. And his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. In Christian art, this picture of Christ and the Lamb is just dominant when you look back on church history. Let me show you a picture that comes uh, literally from uh, the 1400s, I believe. It's a powerful picture. Why? Because the Lamb is always paired with the cross. The Lamb, in God's mind, please don't miss this, folks, was slain from the foundation of the world. That's 1 Peter 1, that's Revelation 7 and 17. God had a plan. He had a sovereign mission. And whenever you read about the Lamb in the Old Testament, it was prefiguring. It was a shadow of the substance to come. But this plan goes back before the foundations of the world. God's sovereign plan to redeem humanity. And so what I would suggest is this, when we think about the real Christmas, think about God's purposes. It's redemption. Think about God's purposes. It's sacrifice. The precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on your behalf and mine. And folks, not only to equip you, but to inspire you, people desperately need to hear this message. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, to be washed in the blood of Christ. What a blessing this Christmas. Revelation number three, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus. Now, please stick with me here because hopefully you'll learn a few things about prophecies. The chief object of prophecy was to do what? Prepare the way for Christ. And when he would come, he might be identified by comparing the prophecies to the predictions being fulfilled. So people could open up the scriptures, and that's what you see. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John constantly point back to the Old Testament scriptures saying, today this is fulfilled. This virgin birth, Matthew said, is fulfilled. The place and location of his birth is fulfilled. And the list goes on and on. Now, would you agree to declare a thing shall come to pass long before it ever existed and to bring it to pass could only be a work of God? Folks, prophecy is miraculous. Don't take this for granted. This isn't Nostradamus. This isn't generic prophecies. This is specific. It's crossing T's. It's dotting I's. I'm going to give you two examples this morning. Go back with me to Matthew or to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. 500 years before Jesus Christ was born, here's what the prophet Micah said. It's powerful. Bethlehem Ephrathah. You are small among the clans, notice, of Judah. Circle that if you have it in your Bibles. 
One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from when? From eternity. Now, what's really striking about this statement about Bethlehem, uh, and most people don't realize this, there were two Bethlehems in Israel in the first century. There was a Bethlehem in Galilee, about 100 miles north of the Bethlehem in Judah. What does the prophet say? Specifically, identically, exactly, Ephrathah, Bethlehem of Judah. The Messiah is going to be born. And so, folks, this isn't generic. This isn't wars and rumors of wars. These are specific, detailed things, the exact origin of the Messiah's birth. Now, how about his crucifixion? If you have your Bibles, I want you to look to just a real quick passage in Psalm 22, 16 through 18. You're going to see four specific things about the Messiah in three verses. This is remarkable. It's over the top. Nobody in their right mind could do it. This is supernatural truth. Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. Notice this next phrase, folks. They pierce my hands and my feet. This is Roman crucifixion being forecasted through the psalmist. David writes this. Way back in history, then continuing, I can count all my bones. Why is that important? When you're hanging on the cross in Roman crucifixion, they finally came by, broke your bones, you couldn't boost yourself up, get air in your oxygen, get air in your lungs, and you would die of asphyxiation. They came to Christ, they said what? He's dead, leave his bones alone. They didn't break his bones. You want to talk about precision. People look and stare at me, of course. Now notice this next one. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Friends, all you have to do is jump to the Gospel of John chapter 19. You find four fulfillments in three verses. That's over the top, that's remarkable. Years ago when I was a youth pastor, we were very much into equipping our students. And so we would train them to share the Gospel. We'd teach them about world religions, Christian cults. We wanted them to be informed. We never wanted them to be blindsided. But one of the things we did in the equipping is we took them on location. And so, yes, we would take them to a a Mormon place. We would take them to meet Jehovah Witnesses. We took them to the mosque, and they sat with imams, and there was dialogue and inquiry. But I'll never forget the time I'm sitting with students, there's about 20 of us, in a synagogue. And we're with a rabbi. It's very respectful. We were there to learn from them, but it was dialogical. And so I said, sir, could I read a few passages from the Old Testament, passages you're probably familiar with? I read from Isaiah 53. I read from Psalm 22. And I said, could I respectively ask, who do you believe this is referring to? He says, oh, that's easy. Everybody in Orthodox Judaism believes that's the coming Messiah. And I said, sir, you know, we're on the same page. We as Christians believe that's the coming Messiah, but he already came. It's Jesus Christ. And I asked him, could I share with you a little bit why we believe it's fulfilled in Christ? Pierced hands and feet, Roman crucifixion. Casting lots for the garment right there in John 19. By his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed. What stripes? It's called 
Roman scourging, they whipped his back if you've seen the passion of Christ. This is literal, this is specific, this is over the top about our Messiah. And thankfully, the rabbi respectfully listened to us as we listened to him, and a seed was planted that day. Now, we have a resource for you, because I mentioned uh, equipping. And so, Rose Publishing puts out what's called 100 Prophecies Fulfilled in Christ. It's on your seat today. That's a gift to you this Christmas. If you're at home and you'd like a copy, just email me and I'll get you a copy. Here's the key thing, folks. This isn't complete. This is only 100 of some would say 300 plus prophecies. One guy, Herbert Lockyer, he's close to 80 years old. And he invested his final work, final book, all the messianic prophecies of of the Bible. The book is a big one. There's over 300 prophecies. Now, just imagine. One guy, his name is Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner is a PhD in mathematics. And let me show you the relevance now where we're going. He says, forget about 300 prophecies fulfilled. Forget about 100 prophecies specifically fulfilled. Just imagine if eight prophecies were specifically fulfilled from Old Testament, 500, 700, 800 years before Christ came, what would be the probability? So he did his math. Guess what he came up with? The probability of only eight prophecies being specifically fulfilled would be this, one in 10 to the 28th power. Let me show you that on the screen, see how it came out. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Nate. Nate did this last night. That's cool. It's one with 28 zeros. Just imagine if you beefed it up to 25 prophecies, 100 prophecies, 300 prophecies. You couldn't fit it on the screen. You know what Stoner said? A PhD, an educated man, prolific author. He said this, the law of probability is impossible that this Jesus could not be the Messiah forecasted in the Old Testament. He said, it's a fact. I can hang my hat on it. I believe it because it's that real. And friends, here's the encouragement. You tie this all together now. These guys are struggling to believe, as the zealots did, as the religious leaders did, as the people in Nazareth did, as many today still struggle to believe. Where did Christ take the men to Emmaus? To the Bible. Take people to the Bible. Show them Christ in the Old Testament. Show them the types of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Show them the prophecies, 8, 50, 100. Sit down with them and let the gospel of the Old Testament be revealed and God's spirit works salvation. That's the challenge. Now, evidence number two, we'll tie it all together. Believe because of the incarnation of Christ. And we have to move here. Look at verse six. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Let me ask you a question from that passage. Who is this child that will be born? Who is this child that will be given? You know what Isaiah says? He is mighty God. Folks, that's one of the most remarkable statements in all of literature. Mighty God is going to be born? Literally, historically, figured, uh, physically born? Yes. And then we jump to the New Testament. What do we see? He's born where? In Bethlehem of Judea. 
He's born how of a virgin birth? He's born into history as the God-man. And the question you got to ask right now is, why is this relevant? Folks, here's the encouragement for relevance. Because the average person today in 21st century America would suggest this about Christmas. It doesn't matter if Christ was literally born. It doesn't matter about the historical realities of his birth. It doesn't really matter if there's a virgin birth in the town of Bethlehem. You know what matters about Christmas? It's not the historical doctrine and reality of Christ's coming. The prophecy is being fulfilled. Here's what matters. Christmas is about hope. Christmas is about being loving. Christmas is about giving gifts and being generous. And you know, all of that's true, but that's not foundational. You know what the world thinks about the real Christmas? That Christmas is just an attitude or a disposition, and it doesn't really have to connect to God promising a Messiah. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. But Jesus came. He was born. And that is a vital doctrine to the Christian faith that we can't relinquish. Folks, it's more than the Christ principle. It's way more than the Christ spirit. It goes way beyond being generous and hopeful and good. You know what that is? That's the gospel of good works that sends so many to eternal damnation. This is the greatest gift. And it's not by our works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he sent his son. Unto us a child is born. Notice the next phrase. A son is given. That's the greatest gift. And so I want to encourage you this morning as you think about the real Christmas. What is the real Christmas? Folks, there's evidences, and the evidences are enormous. But the greatest evidence is that Jesus Christ was born. He lived. We have a record of that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He touched people's lives. He healed Christianity, the truths, have transformed Western civilization, but ultimately, what did he do? He died. He was buried. He rose from the grave. As John said, he's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And so the question this morning is this. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ the Messiah? Has his shed blood been applied to your life just like it was applied to the doorpost in the Passover? And then when God's judgment comes, he sees Christ's blood in our life, sins forgiven, debt paid in full. I want to encourage you this Christmas season to experience the real Christmas, not a Christmas that has an attitude of just being good and being hopeful and being generous but a disposition of thanking God for the greatest gift ever given, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. I want to invite you to stand as we worship together. And I encourage you, at any point in time, folks, God works in your heart. You can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Turn from your sin, turn to the Savior, put your faith and trust in him, come to know him personally as Savior, as Messiah. May God bless you.